You're listening to episode 18 of the We Got the Runs podcast. In this episode, we'll talk to Dr. Calvin Sun about heart health, mental health, and COVID. Welcome to the We Got the Runs podcast. We're your hosts, Letty and Angela, and we invite you to join us as we talk about all things running. In this podcast, we talk tips, tactics, and strategies to make running a favorite part of your life. Hey runners, welcome to episode 18. My name is Letty Lundquist and I'm your host and I am recording this episode from our travel trailer. Yes, you heard right. We ended up buying a travel trailer and here's how this happened. We're used to traveling a lot, at least one international trip a year. And um, my husband has me to thank for that. I'm from Germany and Ecuador and um, feel like I can't breathe unless I travel, at least get out a little bit and see other cultures and different things. So anyway, when I met my husband, he always talked about getting a sprinter van and decking it out and putting beds and shower and all that stuff. And, and this was way before all the millennials started doing that. So when I met him, he actually owned a minivan. He had taken all the back seats out and he had surfboards and a selection of bikes and God knows what other uh, fun toys in the back. So that was his way of traveling and crossing the country and seeing different things. So fast forward, we combine traveling and we do a great mix of everything. But then eventually this minivan died and it hasn't been replaced yet. And um, so my husband talked about getting the Sprinter van. We looked into it and decided we're going to wait on that. And for now, we're going to settle on a travel trailer that is much cheaper and we can figure out how we want our Sprinter van layout to be for the future. So anyway, so now we are in this travel mini trailer that our car is pulling, going up north to Michigan and Wisconsin and God knows where else. I'm really not good on my... um on my geography when it comes to the East Coast United States. I'm really good with West Coast, just not East Coast. But I guess that's um, one way of exploring it. So we named this mini travel trailer Freiheit, which means freedom in German. See what I did there? Freedom from COVID, freedom to travel again. And uh, super excited to be here and um, go on a bunch of different runs and different terrain and really can't wait to tell you all about it. Anyhow, I'm going to move on to our weekly listener review that we always do. And this review comes from Jack Run. Jack Run gives us a five-star review and he says, Thank you so much for providing me with all this information about running. I really appreciate it. You guys are doing a great job. Thank you so much, Jack Runs. We appreciate your input and your recommendation. And um, if you want to be a highlighted listener, leave us a review, preferably on iTunes, and we will read it during our podcast. All right, moving on. Today's episode is called Running With Your Heart and Mind or something like that. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
it. All right. So running with your heart, health in mind, heart health and mental health and um, a little bit about COVID. As I mentioned earlier, we're going to interview our special guest, Dr. Calvin Sun. So Dr. Calvin Sun is um, somebody I've been wanting to interview because I follow him on social media. I found him back in March when he was doing a lot of posts and stories in his Instagram about COVID. Dr. Calvin Sun is a per diem emergency room doctor, meaning that he doesn't work for just one hospital. He works for whichever ones he wants to. He works for himself, which gives him a lot of time to... Um, decide when he wants to work and when he doesn't want to work. And it seemed like during COVID, he was working the entire time. So let me read you his biography. Dr. Calvin Sun is currently practicing as an attending physician and clinical assistant professor in emergency medicine. He's also a public speaker, phablographer, activist, choreographer, and entrepreneur based in New York City. He graduated from Columbia University and Sunny Downstate College of Medicine, respectively as vice president and president of his classes. Dr. Sun was also a host on MTV's hit show, The Freshman, for four years and an award-winning independent filmmaker. He's known for his films on Asian-American stereotypes and female body image, the last of which won an inaugural One to Watch Audience Award at the 2007 Asian-American International Film Festival. His work on Asian-American body image has been published in various articles and books, including the American Beauty Industry Encyclopedia. Calvin is also the founder and CEO of Monsoon Diaries, a blog-turned-travel community that has taken hundreds of readers to 190 countries and territories in the last 10 years, including North Korea, Iraq, the Antarctica, and many more. So that was also one thing that made me follow him on social media because I saw how much he traveled and I um, completely share that and I wanted to see more travel pictures. I'll always follow you if you travel. Anyhow, Monsoon Diaries has since been featured on BBC News, ABC News, NSNBC, TED, National Geographic and USA Today. Dr. Calvinson completed his residency training at the Jacoby Medical Center in 2018, where he served as Director of Resident Wellness. Calvin now practices as an attending physician at multiple underserved emergency departments and large-scaled events around the country, including having been designated as the supervising medical captains at the finish line of the annual New York City Marathon. All right, so that's Calvin in a nutshell. There's much more to him. He's amazing. So without any further ado, here is my interview with Calvin. So I'm here with Calvin's son. Calvin, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do for a living? I am a born and raised New Yorker all my life, Manhattan specifically, and uh, went to college, undergrad, med school, and trained in New York City as an emergency medicine physician or emergentologist. And at the same time, I, a series of serendipities and accidents had also led me to run a travel blog. And like Forrest Gump over the years, uh, people have followed and without my expectations has turned into this huge travel community around the world where we take uh, international trips every three to four weeks up until the pandemic uh, for the last 10 years, having covered 190 countries. 
That's awesome. I like the Forrest Gump running analysis. And with that, I want to ask you, um, you volunteered for the New York City Marathon in 2018, and you had to deal with a runner that was collapsing. And then afterwards, I read that you went home, went to the gym, had another person collapsing around you. And then all that kind of came to resonate with you because you also had that happen to your father. Can you tell us a little bit about that? When I volunteered for the New York City Marathon in 2018, it was my first time to be volunteering as a full attending. Uh, I had just graduated residency, and prior to 2018, I had volunteered as a resident physician or as a medical student. Uh, this time, I was actually in charge. It was the first uh, thing I volunteered for as an attending physician, somebody in charge. And it just so happened that my first day uh, would be to see one of the first cardiac arrests of the season, if not in a few years that the uh, New, York's, uh, New York Roadrunners had seen in one of their races. It happened to be a young 20-something-year-old uh, runner who had just trained, whose heart suddenly stopped while he was running at the finish line. And we were able to resuscitate him, although at the time I had huge imposter syndrome. I remember the medical director, Dr. Weiss, pointed to me and he yelled at everyone that I was in charge. And this is one of my first ever patients as an attending physician. I just graduated. And I'm like, I am? Like, as this was going on, I was like, I'm in charge? Really? Like, you know, <laughs> huge question mark. But in the moment, the whole habits that had formed over time of being comfortable with being uncomfortable, I had kicked into this, this uh, ability to just resuscitate this person uh, as if it was second nature. I was able to bring him back after shocking him twice and uh, sent him to a local hospital to uh, be stabilized further and managed. Um, but we essentially saved his life, uh, for lack of a better term. And about a couple hours later, the race had ended. People shook my hand. Everyone said this was the first cardiac arrest they had in years. And I was a dark cloud. And um, that they were, I mean, New York, runners, New York runners had like done some actuaries analysis and they were overdue for a cardiac arrest every 50 apparently every 50,000 runners you're supposed to have one cardiac arrest oh wow yeah and they were overdue for one after a couple hundred thousand runners over the years uh I would be that person to see it so I go home I change and I go to uh, a gym uh my local gym and I'm lifting uh and uh, getting ready to I'm stretching for to dance and whatnot and I'm thinking like wow like Everybody saw me in my glory moment, like, well, what are the chances feeling all good about myself? And then as if like God or the energy of the universe is like, oh, really? You want to get cocky, huh? The guy next to me on the treadmill collapses in cardiac arrest. Oh and I literally was thinking in the moment, it's like, are you serious? I had a thought. And then somebody responded to that thought or something, some energy. And it had to be this guy on the treadmill. And again, kicked into... Um, this second nature, a little deja vu within the same day, within hours of doing the same exact thing. But this man was 60 something year old, uh, 60 something, uh, who when I checked for his pulse, uh, seemed very irregular. I would find out later that he had a, um, a baseline condition of atrial fibrillation. We worked on him for about an hour and I uh, was able to kind of bring him back every now and then until 911 uh, and the ambulance came and they took over and they took him to a nearby hospital. After which I found out that he did not survive uh, after one or a day, two days in the hospital. And then I would get a phone call later and find out that he did not make it. Um, he, we stabilized him. He was had a pulse since he left, but I think it was just too much for him. And I think one or two days later he died. Not no, the details per se, but the nephew called me thanking me. He somehow found my contact information through the gym 
And uh, as he thanked me, I remember, and I had another deja vu at the time that I called somebody else thanking them for taking care of my father when he died from a sudden heart attack uh, while running in the New York sports club in Soho, which actually I just moved and it's on that block right now. So it's kind of weird how everything just comes together. And I remember just going through the emotions like, wow, like it's coming full circle where uh, I'm being um, thanked for something that I, an action that I had done only um, I think 16 years, 14 years prior. Uh, so I just broke down crying on the phone and, uh, related to the nephew that, you know, this was meaningful in different ways. And I think that was meaningful for the nephew to hear. And we parted ways over the phone. Uh, I was in the middle of a shift at this time. And then to finish the story, it's a long one, uh, about four weeks later, we're training the volunteers for the full New York city marathon. So the race that had happened was the Bronx 10 mile. It's leading up to the, the, the big finale, which is the New York City Marathon that happens once a year on the first Sunday of the November, uh, the largest and, you know, the largest marathon in the world. And we're training these volunteers, a thousand medical volunteers. And I go on stage and I do my thing about, you know, training them and teaching them about hyponatremia and other things that the Dr. Weiss, the medical director, picked me to speak about. And then one of the volunteers came up to me and he's like, Dr. Sun, you saved my life. And it was that kid from the Bronx 10 mile three weeks before that whose life I had saved. And it just so happens that he knew me because we have mutual friends. That's awesome. Can you explain to us why somebody in their 20s, um, regardless or not, whether they're a runner, would collapse or that could happen to them? Too much of anything is bad for you. That's like the rule of life. We need oxygen to breathe, but there is such thing as oxygen toxicity. We need water to survive, but there's such thing as drinking too much water and developing hyponatremia where you seize for the rest of your life. So you have to be careful on how much you do. It's too much of anything is, uh, is, is, can, can be toxic. So baseline running and conditioning up to a certain point can be very healthy because you're encouraging vascularity and blood flow and anything that keeps your heart pumping is good exercise because your heart's a muscle. But if you do too much of it, it can wear down your muscles when your muscles break down and you're not adequately compensating and resting long enough or treating your body correctly, or you have an underlying health condition that you never knew about or underlying heart rhythm that you never knew about, exacerbating and too, having too much of that can cause things like rhabdomyolysis. Your entire muscle culture breaks down from running too much, releases a lot of potassium, and too much potassium stops the heart. That's how death row inmates uh, get chemical <laughs> lethal injection. They get too much potassium. That's what kills, stops the heart. So you don't want that to happen, let alone all the wear and tear that you have on your musculature, all that trauma when you do all those steps. So if you do too much of anything, I mean, that goes with too much swimming, too much scuba diving, too much skydiving, too much driving, too much sitting around uh, is just the, the nature of it. Not necessarily do the running itself, but more just your habits and your lifestyle. Right. Okay. So then now how do we find that fine line of when we do something too much, right? Because there's a way of conditioning ourselves, you know, obviously if you're sedentary and then you get up and run two marathons in two days, that's obviously too much. But if you slowly ease your way up, where do you think it becomes too much? Because there are a lot of ultra runners that are healthy and, um, sure. I mean, I think it, it depends on the person. Some people will have underlying health conditions like, or heart problems like atrial fibrillation. That's sometimes genetic. They may not know about it until they trigger it from too much running for them. But somebody else may not have that genetic predisposition 
where they actually are a clean bill of health and they'll probably live forever. They could probably smoke 20 packs of cigarettes every day and never get lung cancer just because of a genetic thing that I've definitely seen before and know about. Very rare, but those ultra marathon runners will probably be smoking cigars while running 60 laps around Central Park and do just fine uh, as opposed to someone who trains like two weeks. I can definitely see that happening. Uh, it depends on the person. I think what people are very bad in this society, and this is just what goes more than just running or conditioning, is people don't know themselves. People do not have a good relationship with their body or their mental health. They do not know and how to listen to their body, let alone listen to themselves. Uh, I think people are always chasing something to be validated, and this goes for anything, you know, whether it's on social media or physical health or mental health, uh, rather than learning how to love themselves and validate themselves. Uh, in a way that, so when you do do something such as long distance or heavy running, uh, your body can inform you when it's too much and when to take a break and when to cut back. I think a lot of power lifters have even said like, you should not be upset at yourself if you don't hit your max that one day. You are training, you're not testing. Uh, you should love yourself even if you were like having a bad, like people think like, oh, I didn't hit my max. I didn't run that certain thing because I'm bad. I'm a terrible person. And that's very unhealthy. And that's when you push yourself in unhealthy ways. If you learn to love yourself, forgive yourself and maybe say, oh, today is just not a good day. I'm glad I at least went in. I'm glad I at least ran. And if you choose to worship that, then you are actually developing a healthy relationship with your own body and preventing from bad outcomes. That makes a lot of sense. I don't think, I mean, I completely agree with you because once we get a training plan in front of us, what do we do? We look at it and we basically fight ourselves and um, try to stick with it as much as we can because we think that's what we need to do rather than having those off days when we're tired. It's like a dance. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a dancer and I uh, do believe that life as like a marathon, we can also apply life as a dance. It's not the best dancer is not the one that dances the fastest to a certain point in the room or dances as aggressively as possible. The other person falls down. <laughs> That's or you don't go to a concert where you, you want you, you wait for the conductor to conduct the fastest as possible. Then, you know, musical scores would be two minutes long. It's, you can't just have aneurysms of climaxes all the time. A dance is meant to be enjoyed in the moment. It ebbs and it flows. There are slow parts, there are fast parts. The enjoyment is in the whole thing of itself as a dance. You don't anticipate the ending all the time. You enjoy the, a dance in the moment. And the same goes with concerts and, music, and even running, runners high. They enjoy the experience as it is. It's not always about hitting the finish line. You should hit a finish line eventually, but ulti you know, ultimately the, the, what keeps it sustainable for most runners or long distance anything is the enjoyment of the activity in the moment. Uh, and learning when to stop when you need to, because that's also part of the experience and not being so hard on yourself when your body decides to tell you or give you signs that it's time to slow down. It's like a dance. That's a really good analogy. So besides listening to your body, are there any medical tests that a runner should take? I know that in Europe, for example, if you sign up for a marathon and you're from one of the European countries, they make you take an EKG. And I don't know how helpful that is. Um, can you explain why that wouldn't be happening in the U.S.? And do you really think that's helpful? I'm a firm believer as an emergency medicine physician lens. So this is what I believe in, and it does not need to apply to what may, you may believe in. I always tell people the best advice I can give is to not listen to anyone's advice. But if you're <laughs> asking me, I do believe that the test has to be warranted for a certain reason. 
you cannot just test willy-nilly. They're not just, I can walk into a clinic and demand everything. But without any context, without a physician to explain it to me, I'm literally shooting uh, in the dark and asking for trouble. There, if there's a low pretest, because no test is perfect. There's no such thing as the perfect test. Every test is 97, 95% sensitivity or specificity. The best COVID test, the PCR test where they, they jam the, the nose uh, thing up your nose is only 70% sensitive. And that's the gold standard. 70% sensitive means there's a 30% chance your negative test can be wrong. So does that mean we should just test everyone? For the sake of public health, yes, because of by numbers. But for individually, that might drive you crazy when you walk in and you're one of the 30% that is negative, but you actually have the virus. Or the 20% uh, specificity, sorry, the 80% specificity, which means your 20% chance that your negative test could be um, your positive test could be wrong. So you go in thinking like, oh, I don't have COVID. And then you're, you're the one of five people with a positive test that says you have COVID, but you really don't. That will drive you crazy. Then you can't sleep. Then you're isolating yourself unnecessarily. Was it even worth it to come to uh, getting a test if you didn't have symptoms? The pretest probability is important. If you have the symptoms, you can't smell, you have coughing, you were exposed to someone with COVID. Yes, I think it's important to get a test just to... I mean, technically, you don't even have to self-isolate for 14 days. You don't need a test. But if you need a test for the work or to just to be sure it's not flu um, and you have the right management, then, that's, then the test has some value. Uh, and that's the thing with runners. If, ultra, if you're just running around Central Park and you just want to run a few marathons, do you need all those tests? If you have a family history of heart problems and heart conditions and you just want to be as sure as possible, that is different from somebody with a family of runners who never had any heart problems and heart conditions and you've already run in high school and never had an issue then you may not be warranted all those tests unless you want to do an ultra marathon as your first marathon. Maybe you, know, maybe you lost a bet and you want to like be the first person to run an ultra marathon without training. Then you might need some tests beforehand, like an EKG and your baseline labs just to, make, just to be as safe as possible. It really depends on the person and the context. Uh, so a test in a, doesn't exist, exist in a silo. A test has to have circumstances and context to make sense of it. Um, all right, so you've already gone there, but I wanted to um, touch a little bit on COVID. Um, since you live and work through New York City, can you tell us a little bit about working um, during the time, March, April, in, uh, in New York? What, what was that like? It was like 111 days of hell is how Governor Cuomo had put it. Uh, I can't put it any lighter than that. It's three months of hell. I, it was just one of the worst experiences of any of our life, uh, uh, sorry, uh, professionally, uh, I guess politically, because we felt like we were guinea pigs uh, from made, uh, based on decisions or lack of decisions made from the top. And I'll give you an example. Like when I started my first shift uh, since coming back from Angola, uh, I had just led a trip there. I remember landing on March 7th at 6 p.m., 4 p.m. at New York airport. Uh, nobody asked me where I came from, went straight home. And I remember starting my shift on March 8th. And literally, like, so many people were coming in looking for tests that didn't exist. They had heard on the TV or from their politician that tests were available and anyone could be tested. So they came to the ER. And that, to me, like, boggled my mind. It was like, well, the person that was going to have COVID is going to be in the emergency room. So you're literally walking into a fire. And no, we don't have to test because no one has given it to us. So you're essentially just coming in to be exposed by the only place where people will go to when they have COVID. So congratulations, you just got COVID. You need to get out now before you give it to other people or catch more of it because 
we had had an inference at the time that the more exposure you had to a greater viral load, which would be the emergency room, healthcare settings, uh, the more likely you're going to get sick and infect other people. So we didn't want them to stay for too long. And that was that just for like a full, a full week of people just, you know, the worried wells coming in and just exposing themselves unnecessarily. And we were trying to get them out and also exposing us because we didn't know what their exposure threat was. Uh, because you, know, you didn't get screened when you flew back from different countries. And then uh, the second week people got sick and, you know, but they were okay to go home, but they thought they could get cured, but we didn't have a cure for this pandemic. Uh, what can the emergency room do if you're otherwise looking well, speaking well, and your, your oxygen saturation was above 92%, there's nothing we can do for you, but get exposed ourselves. And that's when my colleagues started dying and getting sick. Nurses, doctors, techs, scribes, PAs, NPs, they were all dropping like flies in terms of you know, getting sick and not being able to go to work. I worked 35 shifts the first 50 days since being back on March 8th. To give you context, on average, a doctor should not work more than 10 to 11 days per month is as industry standard. But there was no way for us to manage that because different hospital systems were furloughing people. So they were not allowed to work because they had the sniffles so they were exposed. And I had to fill in for those spots because if I didn't come in, there would be no doctors to run any emergency rooms and emergency rooms will collapse and people will go to other hospital systems and they will collapse. So I had to go and run around different hospital systems to put out fires because I was one of the very few, if not the two other per diems, purely per diems in New York City that I know of, uh, being able to work in different hospital systems because we were credentialed everywhere. If you didn't have the credentialing, if you didn't have the IDs and had a previous relationship there, it takes weeks if not months to get that, you know, that, that access to a hospital uh, and work there. So I was going around, running around with my head cut off, not to mention that the person who are listening to you right now, this podcast is also human. And I was worried myself that I was going to get sick at any point because the people next to me were dying. I would be in rooms with people with COVID and I didn't have enough PPE. We didn't got to talk about the PPE situation where we didn't even have anything. I was wearing my N95 for nine days and N95 is supposed to be disposed of between each patient, not being worn for nine days straight. And the people next to me had better PPE than I did and got sick. And you know, some have died. My grandfather died from COVID and here I am still alive, haven't developed any symptoms, no antibodies, being feeling very grateful and lucky, but at the same time, being very well aware of survivor's guilt. So that's a long answer to your question of what COVID is. And that's, we're only scratching the surface. We haven't talked about PPE. We haven't talked about the people who lost. We haven't talked about the mental health struggles that physicians were already dealing with before this pandemic. Remember, we have a suicide rate twice the national average, let alone this pandemic that's still going on right now. And then we didn't have even talked about the lockdown of the six to eight months that we're still going through right now. A lot of doctors do not recharge well by just talking about it. Sometimes some of us need to do our activities such as traveling or, you know, going to gyms or yoga or things, things that we've been deprived of during this lockdown. So what do you think is going to happen after this is all over? Hopefully, yeah, you and that all those people that had COVID and actually survived recover well. And um, what do you think? Uh, can you summarize what happens to somebody's lungs that contracts COVID? explain it in lay terms and then um, what the long-term effects could be? It depends on the person. Some people can contract COVID and, and be fine. All they, all they have is back pain. Some people, all they have is I can't smell. Uh, for myself, I, got ex I definitely know I've been exposed, but I have never been sick. I don't have antibodies if, if, as if I'd never even contracted COVID. And for somebody with a, a certain medical history or genetic makeup, we don't actually know enough yet 
Uh, I think the, the evidence is pointing to the renin-angiotensin system, the RAS system. People with higher levels of ACE2 receptors, uh, people with certain genetic predisposition to have uh, higher inflammation rates, and also people with higher IL-6 levels. These are inflammatory markers that are usually associated with higher adipose tissue content. Those people tend to have a much worse outcomes, especially with their lungs, when they start leaking cytokines everywhere. It causes that cytokine storm, uh, that inflammatory response where the body attacks itself and overreacts and starts destroying the lungs, uh, as well as the kidneys and the brains and everything. But we all know that the thing that kills you the fastest is the lack of oxygen. So it's not just the lungs, it's everything. It's ACE2 receptors are all over your body. So as your lung is getting destroyed, so is your brain and your kidneys and your circulatory system, you're clotting everywhere. But you die first because of lack of oxygen. That's why they, when we have traumas, when trauma victims come in, we always do airway first because that's the thing that kills people the fastest. If you can't breathe or something compromises your airway, that's going to kill you before anything else. Right before the brain, before the kidneys, before the thing. But just to let you know, it's not just the lungs. It just so happens that we freak out the most because the lungs kill you the fastest. Just like cancer. Cancer is everywhere. But we worry about lung cancer the most because that's the most prevalent cancer and it's attacking the part that you need the most to survive. So your lungs looks like a smoker's lung after maybe one or two weeks. Uh, it looks like you smoke 50 packs a day. Some people need lung transplants because it's so heavily damaged. And that's actually the pathophysiology of most diseases. It's not the virus that kills you. It's not the bacteria that kills you. It's your own body overreacting and with a, such a high inflammatory response to those viruses, bacteria, and foreign materials. It's, it's kind of like a, a, on the spectrum of an allergic reaction. And that's why we give antibiotics or steroids or anti-inflammatories because we're trying to tell the body, chill out. Please don't kill yourself. Don't nuke yourself. Uh, the antibiotics helps with the body uh, in, in, in taking in fighting back less foreign invaders. And that is the art of medicine. Yes, the virus and bacteria is always bad, but it's also training and trying to tackle the body not to destroy its own lungs. Okay, so the receptors you're talking about as well as the lungs, are you saying that once COVID has passed through your system, they are permanently damaged or you know, with the inflammation, does it repair itself? It depends on the person. Some people I know are just fine and don't have any lingering sequela of their disease process. And other people just so happens to have longer lasting sequela of their disease process and are still suffering from, uh, or if not are going through physical therapy from their experience with COVID. It differs person to person. That's why the disease is so good at being a pandemic. It doesn't affect everyone in the same way. So it's much harder to catch. It's very elusive. I always had said, you know, told people that the, the human, the, the, those of us, hum, humans, us, humanity, uh, who survived the apocalypse or the worst things are not necessarily the strongest or the smartest or the most brutal or the, uh, or the biggest. It's the one that is most adaptable, the flexible, the ones that what Bruce Lee says, be water, where they, you can go this or that and whatever. And that's what COVID is, essentially. It's, it, it's elusive. It doesn't affect certain people. So people think they're fine, the asymptomatic carriers. And there's some people who don't even get COVID like myself who have gone with a false sense of confidence. I mean, and that's why I still wear a mask, even though I've been exposed so much and I, my PCP thinks I have natural immunity. But I still not going to take a chance because I'm not going to let COVID win over me, knowing that it can just mutate at any time, or it can have different strains. So you just don't know enough about it. It doesn't affect everyone equally, therefore making a much harder enemy to you know, combat. Uh, unlike smallpox or yeah. polio, 
They're eradicated essentially because they were so monolithic. They kill people really scarily, so scarily, but so uniformly that everyone was like, yeah, smallpox is real. It's bad. Just Google small. And there's only of all the things that you can, you can Google that I allow you to Google is smallpox <laughs> and Google images that and just look at that. And because it's so devastating, it's not very smart though as a pandemic because we basically unite against smallpox and we, in, before the car was, you know, anything, <laughs> we were able to destroy smallpox and eradicate it completely. You can't do that with COVID. It's because it's just, we just don't know enough about it. Yeah, we don't know enough about it. And that said, um, you know, there's a ton of people that are trying to run again. But, you know, given that we don't have treatment, that we don't have a vaccine, and that this virus is something that mutates, what um, do you think about the racing season starting up? Under what precautions do you think could it be safe to do it again? Because we've seen Pikes Peak Marathon, for example, in Colorado happening last week where they have different waves, obviously smaller race and all that. Do you think there's any way of um, starting something up safe again? Or do you think that we will have to just, you know, bite the bullet or I guess not bite the bullet and just wait it out until there is some more treatment and uh, vaccine information available? It depends on the moving target that, Uh, you can either be completely safe and never run again. Don't run until uh, three years from now. But a lot of people are going to die from heart disease and cardiovascular problems and, you know, not be encouraged to go to the, you know, run in circles around the room. And that's not healthy either. Uh, and you can go just let it all out. Everyone runs. Um, but, and that might spread COVID. It, it really is, it depends on where you are and the marathon. I do, and where the marathon takes place and where is the prevalence. If you have a marathon in New York City right now, we just are, I think, starting with New York City, New, NYC runs is starting with the race. New York Road Runners is restarting the race. We have in New York City where the virus has really affected all of us, but New Yorkers are really good at wearing face coverings, like 90%, 95%. Technically, officially, it's at least 60%. We're the most mask wearers still in the entire country, being 60%. That culture of just being so traumatized by being one of the first epicenters in the country allows for us to have in our habits that's ingrained from that trauma to be more careful. And not as many people will go to the gyms. Not as many people will sign up to run. Not as many people will. A lot of us in New York have moved out. So it's essentially a city that may be safer to hold a marathon. It's one, it, it's the safest city in the, the country right now than it would be to have a marathon in Florida or Arizona, uh, or even Hawaii right now, where there's an increasing death rate. Uh, so it depends on where you are. Uh, I do think that if you keep everything outdoors and everyone's wearing face coverings, you have what's the effect of the Black Lives Matters protests and rallies that we've seen since May. No spikes, zero. They've been protesting since April 28th, I believe, or May 28th, and six weeks later, which is way beyond the window. It's, I think it's up to like, 11 days before you have symptoms. Six weeks later, not a single spike or hotspot formed in New York City. And they were all mass rallies, kind of close together. I mean, outdoors, and everyone's kind of wearing face coverings. So why can't you have a marathon by that logic? Well, people are breathing out more. Sure, then spread out, as you said, the waves, spread them out more, have a larger running uh, apparatus. Uh, and if that's the case, then learning from those experiences, and then we're going to find out about the data from what happened in Colorado, uh, if there is ability to have a successful marathon. Also, increase your testing uh, capabilities. There are new tests that are coming out that can give you a result within 15 minutes. If you, can able, if you are able to create a ring of safety 
and have people enter this ring, runners who are registered, get tested, and they're negative, they can enter the ring and start, you know, uh, get, start the meets. Uh, and if you can do that, that's an additional bonus to ensure a safe uh, runner, uh, running event. The biggest concern, actually, as uh, someone involved in the New York City Marathon is the medical captain at the finish line. The bigger concern is the crowds that gather to watch the marathon runners. We're not really worried about the marathon runners per se, more so than the crowds that gather. And it's tough because marathon runners, are the ones I know, depend on the energy of the crowd to uh, finish their, their marathon. So it's that little balance. Of course, we're still worried about the runners, but they're in also very peak physical conditioning, most of them. We can, it's controllable how we stagger their uh, starts. Uh, we can separate them. They can all run with face coverings. And a lot of people who complain about face coverings when running, I'll tell you this. If you, a lot of tr runners either go to high altitudes for lower oxygen, if they can't afford higher altitudes training, they wear a mask. That's been going on since the dawn of time. If you deprive yourself a little bit of the baseline oxygen, you become a more efficient runner uh, in terms of your oxygen delivery capacity of your blood. We've been doing it since even before COVID. So take that as a motivating <laughs> factor. Uh, this is how I look at things. Where can we find a win-win? And it is totally, don't think about option A or option B. There's always option C. Life is not black and white. It's always shades of gray. No, that's awesome. That's, a, that's some great tips and uh, suggestions, especially because I think um, the cruising industry started back up in uh, Europe and they have those tests that are rapid tests where people get tested and get to board the cruise ship if they have that 20-minute test and yep. test negative. Yeah, and, and I think that you should, that, that's also good to have. But also, as an emergency medicine doctor, I don't really, I'm not into the game of prevention. I love being able to prevent. But my specialty lies in when you can't prevent for things and emergencies happens, how do I stabilize that? So in my lens is, that's great you have the testing. That's good for preventive, so make sure nobody with the virus gets on board. But somebody can always slip in. It's like a zombie movie. Somebody can always test, you know, with a false negative and get on board and infect everyone like a zombie. So if you fail to prepare, prepare to fail. Does the ship and cruising industry or the marathon running industry have contingency plans to cohort people in case there is uh, an outbreak? Of course, a cruise, you have many, many days on that. Do they have places in the ship that they can cohort them? We're not talking about that, we're talking about running. So I guess, what do you do when a runner develops symptoms? You have to have good contact tracing. You have to make sure, because a lot, I know a lot of marathon runners, they actually travel to many different marathons. They collect them as many as possible within a year. So before they you know, fly to Greece for the Athens Marathon after finishing the New York City Marathon, before they do that, make sure they get tested again or hold them back from you know, going on the plane infecting everyone else. I think is, you need to have those things in place before the event. Um, another idea is to have all the marathons take place on the island and have them run in circles around the island. The only way to get in and off the island is uh, a boat. So That's awesome. <laughs> that sounds pretty exotic. That sounds uh, like a fun marathon for sure. We have them. We actually thought about it. New York City Marathon, we were thinking about having it on like Governor's Island or Ellis Island or Randall's Island, where like the only way in and out is through very easy old uh, checkpoints, such as a ship or a bridge. Um, but the biggest concern were the crowds. Actually. The spectators, like, yeah. Yeah, we can totally, like, you can make people run 16 times around Governor's Island, but it's the spectators. If you don't have the spectators, the runners just don't have that, you know, extra gas to finish. It's just like, we need the run. We need the, the, the people cheering us on. And I totally get that. It's, it's a, that's why it's an event. Well, you know, at this point, I think people will be happy to just do anything but virtual races. So yeah, they might take a marathon girl. without spectators. <laughs> Well, thank you, Calvin, so much. That was um, 
some great answers that you provided me with. I'm super grateful. <laughs> Pleasure's mine. Thank you for having me. And thank you again so much, Calvin. I had a really good time talking to you and picking your brain about all these things that you know so much about and we know so little about. And hopefully we can keep in touch and you can come on another time about a different topic. All right. So no podcast of mine would be complete without one of our listeners asking a question for our Australian physiotherapist, Brody Sharp. So let's make this phone call. Hi, Brody. How are you doing? I'm good, lady. How are you? I'm doing great. I have a question for you from Agata Hakopian. She says, where I live, it is already cold. I have spent all summer long in warm temperatures and my body is when my body is warm. But in the winter, do I have to warm up my body with stretches so I don't get injured? Oh, good question. Hi, Agata. Um, thanks for your question. Uh, there is a huge... Um, like debate around the effectiveness of stretching and whether it's uh, appropriate or not. And there's a ton of evidence to show that stretching itself, like static stretching, if you were to stretch and hold, doesn't do anything to prepare the body for running. It doesn't do anything for injury prevention or uh, performance, that kind of thing. So if stretching makes you feel better and if you just through trial and error, if you feel like stretching just makes you feel better, then definitely go for it. But uh, it definitely won't reduce your risk of injury. If you're talking about temperature and wanting to prepare the body a bit more then something more appropriate just to Uh, what we want to do is we want to prepare the body for what it's about to do. And we want to slowly um, work through the steps. So like increasing uh, blood flow, increasing like your core temperature, increasing the temperature to the muscles. And that can be just done with a fast, brisk walk and then a really slow jog and then just getting into your run gradually. So that's what I like to do if it is particularly cold and I do feel particularly stiff. I'll do some light stretches, just 10 seconds each, but I make sure that if I am doing a long run or a hard run or something like that, where I do need to prepare my body a bit more, it just takes a slow jog for, you know, a couple of minutes and then you're slowly working your way into the pace that you are wanting to do during that run. So I do have a podcast episode on this. Um, it is episode 59 of the run smarter podcast. And I think we'll attach the link in the show notes Uh, it's called Q&A number three, and I answer everyone's warm-up stretching and recovery tips. So um, that's episode 59, which we'll link in the show notes. So if you wanted more information about that, I discuss in a bit more detail on that episode. Thank you so much, Brody. And how can they reach you if uh, our listeners want to get a hold of you? Uh, so, well, my first point of contact would be going to the podcast if you want to learn more. So the Run Smarter podcast. And if you wanted to head to my website, if you want to reach out and say, hi, I have any other questions, you can go to breakthroughrunning.physio. Perfect. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you so much, Brody. Again and again, we appreciate your input. And um, for you guys, if you want to have a question answered on air, just make sure that you message us to us. You can find us on all the social medias. And um, that's it for today. Uh, hopefully you guys will have some good runs. I know that I will, given that I'm going to have completely different scenery and terrains. So I'm sure I'll tell you all about it. And until next time, have a good week of running. 
Thanks for listening to this episode. As always, we hope that we were able to provide you with something of value. Make sure you like our Facebook page and follow us on Instagram. Our account you can find under WGTR Podcast. Thanks. Until next time, have a great week of running.